Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. Yuhan We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Shijodashi yeah, that's where I am right now. Um, and just after I came back from the bathroom a few minutes ago, um, my friend Nathan brought me a little security blanket that I brought to China with me. And this is my alma mater, Auburn University. And uh, I want you to know I'm missing their game this morning for you. So thank you so much for the chance to preach. This was great. And thank you, Nathan, for bringing me my hat. I was wondering where it was. Um, This morning, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. Uh, And I'd advise you, if you have a Bible, open it up, because I get things wrong occasionally. For example, last night I sent um, information for the slides to Josh, and Josh promptly called me and said, "Um, Luke 19 has nothing to do with the Good Samaritan. And I said, really? So I went and looked in the Bible, and sure enough, it was supposed to be Luke 10. So if I make any other mistakes, you probably want to have your Bible open just to make sure that I'm getting it right and that I'm not leading you astray in any way that's worse than just the long chapter, all right? Um, in this chapter, we're looking at a story that's best told on a flannel graph as far as I'm concerned. You remember flannel graphs? Those of you who don't, in America, in Sunday school, they have these easels, you know, like you paint on, and it's made of flannel. And then they have the Bible story characters go on the easel, and your teacher stands up there and makes voices and goes, There was once a man walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And that's how, in my mind, this story starts. Um, and, but, you know, there's more to it, and this morning I'd like to share with you a little bit uh, some stuff that I, figured, I found out. Uh, over the past couple of weeks as I've been looking into this story. Um, background, this is probably a story that Jesus told during the last week, not last, the last year of his life. Um, he had spent a lot of his time in Galilee, 
which was his home territory, um, his home uh, region. It's just north of Judea. Uh, and between there is another place called Samaria that's going to come into the story later. And then there's Judea, which is below. And Jesus had spent a lot of time. It's kind of there. It's, it's sort of a rural place. Lots and lots of tiny little villages, farmers, shepherds, fishermen, uh, kind of a blue collar type place, if you know what that means. These are working class folks, simple and hardworking. And Jesus was traveling around this place and he's gathered some disciples with him. He's got a group of really close associates here. There's 12 of them. And he's just previously to this chapter, commissioned a bunch of these 12 as his official messengers or his apostles. And then he has also just sent out another group of 70 who are below the apostles and who are evangelists, I guess would be a good way to put it. They travel from town to town. They spread the news. They, they create uh, like small groups and that sort of thing. And Jesus is now headed back towards Jerusalem on what you might term his farewell tour, I guess. Um, going from town to town, he's probably visited some of these places before. He's doing miracles along the way. He's gathering crowds of people who are following him around the countryside and flocking to his teaching when he's there in each little town. And sometimes they follow along. Um, and he's, as he's going, as you read the Gospel of Luke and some of the other Gospels, you notice that Jesus' message is getting clearer and clearer about what his intentions are. And yet it's so radical and it's so strange and seems so out of character for what they expect of their Messiah, their chosen one, that his disciples even, the closest ones, the apostles, are, they're not hearing it. All right, And so that's, that's what he's doing. He's trying to make it as clear as possible. I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to get arrested. And they're, probably going, to, and they're going to kill me. There's no probably about it. They're going to do it. And they just they don't hear it. All right? So when they get to one of these small places, they're, they're pretty near Jerusalem now. They're in Judea. And they stop. And they're, they're in a place where Jesus is teaching. And if you look at Luke 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 25 is where we're going to start our, our, our uh our story. If you don't have a Bible, you can read up here. Um, if you do, please read along. Um, not out loud, but read along. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. You know you're in trouble when a lawyer stands up to put you to the test. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you shall live. Now, if we stop there, we would get the idea that Jesus is advocating salvation by works, by following rules. But he's not. He's not doing that, all right? Because even though he does say, do this, um, Jesus knows that people can't do this. And so do you. I mean... Can you really love others like yourself, like you love yourself? Really? All the time? I don't think so. I mean, I know myself, and I can't do it. Um, and so what Jesus is going to, he, he wants to, you know, show a little something to this lawyer. You know, if people could achieve this, they could achieve eternal life. But they can't. All right, so Jesus knows that. So in verse 29, we, the lawyer speaks up again. He says, but he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, who is my neighbor? This is one of those questions that teachers of the liberal arts love. 
there's this, you know, the, the, the student out there who thinks they're going to be really smart and they're going to get you. And they, they just step right in it. And so Jesus is a really good teacher and he doesn't want to humiliate the guy. But he does want to point him in the direction where Jesus is actually going. All right. So Jesus very skillfully tells a story to illustrate something about justification. The lawyer thinks he can justify himself. But Jesus wants to teach about justification, which is being made right with God or being made uh, just in the eyes of God. So verse 30, then Jesus tells a story to kind of divert his attention. Here we go. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came by, came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. I assume it means the other side of the road. So. This is one of the most familiar stories in the Bible. Like I said, you probably heard it in Sunday school. If you went to Sunday school, you probably read through it pretty quickly. But if you're like me, you you might be missing something that I discovered. The priest, uh, because the priest and the Levite appear to be these inhumane and callous guys, you know, because they see someone who's half dead and they kind of go, ooh, and they stay away and they walk on. And to us, without... So a little bit more information. We're like, that's terrible. How could they do that? But you have to put yourself in their position. Priests and Levites had a really important job in ancient Israel. Uh, They were like crucial to the spiritual life of the ancient Israelites. Um, Their job was to stand between the Israelites and God's anger. They're like a shield between him or a mediating party. So if they don't do their job then God's anger against the Israelites will break out and bad things will happen. All right? They have to, what they have to do in order to do their job is they have to be, some, be called ceremonially clean. Okay? They, like in order, in some ceremonial way, they have to be clean, cleaner than everybody else to perform their job well. If you want to know a little more, we can turn to Numbers 19. I'm going to show you those verses up here. But Numbers is way back in the Old Testament. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers, the fourth book in the Bible. Okay? So if you want to look with me, that's where you go. Go back to the beginning, count four forward. We're in Numbers chapter 19 is where we are. Numbers chapter 19. There's a few verses that will explain about this ceremonial cleanliness. Verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean. For seven days. Okay. Verse 14. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. So that, you know, like their dishes and their Tupperware and all that stuff. It's unclean. Uh, whoever in the, is in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally... Or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Verse 20. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, then there's a ceremony for that that you can read about elsewhere. Um, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, meaning put out of Israel. Since he's defiled the sanctuary of the Lord, because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he's unclean. So... 
There were lots and lots of Levites. It was a whole tribe of people. And in the Old Testament, God gave them a particular job. Their job was to stand between God and, and the people to make sure that they can make atonement for sin. That's their whole job. All right. And so uh, most Levites have jobs in the cities and towns all over Israel. And they do teaching and some other ceremonial type things. But then there's another class called priests. And their job is primarily in the tabernacle and the temple to, to offer sacrifices. All right. So that's two classes. These Levites, they live all over the country. And occasionally, maybe once or twice or three times in their life, they get to go down to the temple and they get to work and serve with the priests. It's like the pinnacle of their professional life. They've been training for this their whole lives. They've been thinking and looking forward to the time that they get to go to the sanctuary. They get to help with the sacrifices. They get to serve. You know, They work their tails off for that. And they wait and anticipate. So you can imagine this Levite walking down the road. He knows the law. He knows it very well. He sees what appears to him to be a dead person. And he remembers, okay, if I go over there and I touch him or come near him, I could lose this one chance. This chance I've been waiting for my whole life. Or I might get it again when I'm 50 or 60 years old, if you're my age. I'm 38. All right, so you have to wait 25 more years, maybe. We don't know, depending on how many Levites were in Israel. But it's a huge deal. And now, see, see where he's coming from? See the tension that he's feeling? Because he knows that maybe he's alive. Maybe I need to help him. But then again, my whole life, this is what I've been working for. Let's talk about the priest. The priest comes and he's going down the road and he sees someone who might be dead the priest's job is even is is even more important because the priest is the one who's going to go and make the sacrifices now there were there were a lot of priests but there weren't nearly as many as there were levites they were kind of a clan within the tribe of levi the levites and so he's looking at this going okay if i go and see if this person is dead or alive or whatever uh, then for the next seven days i can't do the job and then the people's sins won't be atoned for and all these other people could suffer if I don't go and do that so you feel the tension this man is feeling first century Jews knew this because they knew about the ceremonial laws they knew what Levites were they knew what the priestly class was supposed to do and they could feel that tension for these men even as they went well but he's alive we know he's alive they don't know he's alive Okay? And so the question is, do I obey God on, the, on these crucial ceremonial laws that atone for sin? Or do I obey God by going and helping someone? It's a harder question than it appears to our 21st century minds. Um, if Jesus were to tell this parable today, it might be a, a slightly different. Maybe let's, let's, let's ask this question. Who would be in the parable today instead of priests and Levites? Well, okay, obviously, priests or pastors or ministers or whatever you call them in your tradition. Those guys could be easily plugged into this story, all right? Uh, but it could be other people as well. The priest could represent a CEO of a company, uh, an executive of any sort, uh, a business owner or a politician. The list could go on. It could be any respected community or religious leader um, who has... They have to lead a group of people and their time and, and their energy are really, really important. And if they don't do the right thing at the right time, lots of people, people's lives could be affected. So 
their tension would be, do I stop to help in whatever way? Or will my company fall apart? Uh, will my, will my, I not get to that diplomatic negotiation where we could go to war? Or you could just imagine any kind of high-powered situation where someone might be tempted to, to not do the right thing because of their responsibility, because of their religious obligation. The Levites, not necessarily leaders, um, but any busy person with lots and lots of responsibility in very little time uh, can, can, can probably relate to their attention. Uh, they have one shot at the big time. They have, they've worked their tails off for years and years to get to this meeting, to this sale, whatever. And this, inda- this injured man endangers their whole life's work, all the time they put into it. Are you feeling the tension for them now? A little bit at least. Now I know we have 2,000 years of Christian teaching that help us to say, yeah, but you should have. But that's kind of where they're coming from. Jesus then, as if this wasn't tense enough, Jesus throws in the ultimate intention. Look at Luke 10, starting verse 33. So Jesus then he just turns the screws on them a little bit more. He says, but a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. All right. If you don't know, Samaritans were cultists. They were enemies of the Jews at that time, and they had been for centuries. Their religion was kind of a hybrid between some pagan religions and Judaism. Most Samaritans were descendants of foreign people who had been brought in by the Persians and the Babylonians, and then they had intermarried, which is bad. With Jewish people at that time, that was against their law to do that. You couldn't, because it was religious reasons. Um, and then they stayed and they made all kinds of trouble for the Israelites who came back from the, from the Babylonian captivity. Um, and if you want to know more about that, read Ezra and Nehemiah. It'll give you a good snapshot of why the Samaritans were so badly hated. But for our purposes, we hear Samaritan, this is not our fight. We don't get it. For those of you from the West... Instead of Samaritan, think Nazi. Okay? Think terrorist or potential terrorist. Okay? Think the worst criminal you can, you can imagine who's been now been let off, let out of prison, but you still don't like him because of what he did. That's what they're feeling when they hear the word Samaritan. Okay? So this Samaritan comes along. He has compassion, and everybody in the crowd is like, huh? Way And Jesus goes on in verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, his in, he, this Samaritan is in enemy territory. He's in Judea. He's not in Samaria. Um, it's, it's dangerous for him to even be there because people hate him so much just because of who he is. But even with all that, he stops. He ministers. He puts the guy on his pack animal of whatever it is. Maybe he carries him. We don't know. He takes him to an inn, binds up his wounds, tends him for a few days, pays for all the medical care that he has and money to do, and says, I'll come back and settle even more. Despite the historical animosity that you might hear, that you might feel towards this person. I mean, just, you know, if, I don't know, most of you are from lots of different places. And every place has its own hated group. 
its own group that there's tension historically. Maybe you don't hate them now, but there's tension from when you did hate them a long time ago. And now you, do, you just don't know how to live with each other very well. I'm from Alabama. And I, I feel the tension a little bit when I read this story. Because where I come from, uh, black people were terribly mistreated by my own ancestors. My ancestors owned many of them. And then in my town, 25% of the people are former slaves of ours. Or at least they had the descendants of former slaves. And there is tension. There has been tension always. There still is, even now. That's, you, so put yourself, wherever you're from, there's one of those groups. And he helps you anyway. Now, this is a story about the gospel. Because Jesus then says this in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. There are three gospels, I think, in this story. And only one of them is the real one. Let's look at the first one. The gospel, according to the lawyer, says, justify yourself by proving yourself. Because that's why the lawyer was asking the question. He sees this famous teacher, this upstart miracle worker, and he's like, I got him. I got in with this question. He wants to prove himself. We often try to prove ourselves. This week in my class, we have a discussion group. I teach a values education class, and I give the students an opportunity to come after class for a half hour, and they can ask any question they want. And this young lady told me a a story about her terribly packed schedule. Uh, She's a gymnast at her university. Uh, She has a boyfriend. Uh, she's taking too many classes. She says she had 23 hours of classes this semester. Um, and she has a part-time job to help pay for expenses. And she says, I feel like I've got too much. What should I do? So I began to ask her some questions. And it came out in the questions that her parents, she has loving, wonderful parents who want to pay so that she can eat and she can buy clothes and get her necessities. And she says, but I don't want to. I feel like I need to prove myself to them. So my question was, why? Why do you feel like you need to prove them? Do do they love you? She said, yes, they love me. So why do you have to prove yourself? She didn't have an answer. She said, I feel like they've worked too hard. So I I don't want to burden them. But they want the burden. She's trying, and and when it comes down to, she wants to prove herself. She wants to justify herself in her parents' eyes. And my advice to her is, I said, well, I think you've got to cut something. If I were you, I would cut the job because you've got the provision. They've given it to you already. It's there waiting for you. You know, she wants to prove herself. And the lawyer does too. Um, Many of us are just like that. We know God loves us. We know Jesus died for our sins. But we still feel like we've got to do something after that. Add something to it. But there's nothing to be added to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Nothing. It's done. When before he gave up his last breath, he said, it's finished. It is finished. Second gospel. It's very, very similar to the first one. It's a justify yourself gospel. But it's a justify yourself through uh, ritual or achievement. So the Levite and the priest also wanted to be justified according to what they do. But they were relying on their career, the Levite. And they were relying on religion or their ceremony, which was the priest. 
And this is the pinnacle of their professional goals. They're very influential people. They're important. They need to do their jobs or other people will suffer. Families, their own career. They had to get to work at the temple. Or you could insert church there if you work at a church. Um, No matter what, even at the cost of a precious life. But they miss one thing. Micah, the prophet Micah, um, wrote in his book, Micah 6, 6 through 8, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O oh man, what's good and what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. They missed it. They missed it. God's heart is justice, kindness. The ceremony is important because God said it was. But what's more important? Third gospel, and this is the one we should take home with us, okay? The gospel demonstrated by the Samaritan. You need an unexpected rescuer. The Samaritan is a mystery, really, in the story. He's probably not a worshiper of the true God. Yet, Jesus makes him the hero of the story. It blows his audience's mind. Why? I think he wants to contrast the real good news very, very much with the false good news that, that you've heard before. The lawyer thought God was an Israelite judge who's keeping a tally of the ceremonies you keep and the sins you make. And when you go before him, he's going to weigh on the scales and then you'll be justified according to what you've done, especially ceremonially. Okay? That's only part of the story because there is something to that. That's part of it. But God has a law and yes, he wants us to keep holy and Jesus wants us and the lawyer to know we can't. That's why he tells this story. You cannot, not even the Levite and the priest can keep God's commands. Look at the priest and the Levite. They probably kept the letter of the law. They did by passing by that dead body. They kept the letter of the law and yet they broke the law because they didn't know if he was dead. The Samaritan is an outsider. He, he lives by the spirit of the law and he fulfills the law. He's a type of Jesus. Jesus is an outsider. Jesus keeps the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. Jesus keeps the law perfectly. The Samaritan travels from outside. He's from outside of Judea. He comes in. He sees someone who needs to be rescued. He does what it takes to save his life at great personal cost and great danger. Jesus, outside the world, travels into the world at great personal cost, great discomfort, sees a multitude of people who need to be saved. He does what it takes to save us at great, great cost. Of course, the the parable of the Good Samaritan is a lesson about how to love people. That's obvious. That's so obvious. But it's also a lesson about how to be a good neighbor, and it's a picture of the gospel. Follow the Good Samaritan's example. And I'm sure you can think of a dozen examples right now. People who are by the roadside, who are there, who need you, and you've probably overlooked them. I thought of 30 at least this week. They're little things that I could have done. And that's great. Go do that. Because if you do that, if you love people that way, the church will look better, Jesus will look better, and more people will want to come and find out what he's about. Do it. But that's not all. The gospel of the Good Samaritan is that you are as good as dead. 
Because who are we in the parable? We're the, de- we're the guy on the side of the road. We're the ones who look like we're dead. We may as well be. If no one, if no one helps us, we're as good as dead. And we need a rescuer. Dead people can't justify themselves. I think the Apostle Paul was thinking about the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, possibly, when he wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. Um, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were dead, just like that guy. Paul also could have been thinking about the Good Samaritan when he wrote this to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 2. This one he's talking about Jesus, not about us. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourself, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Talk about the ultimate rescue mission. I have four takeaways for you today, and then we'll let you go. First, you're dead if you're not in Christ. I, I hate to speak so... No, I don't. I like to speak so plainly. <laughs> I was about to say something that's not true. My wife would have gone, <clears throat> I'm a very black and white person, and I'm sorry, but this is the truth. Uh, the Bible says it. You're dead in your trespasses, and that doesn't make you worse than me. I was really, really, really dead at one point, and, and Christ brought me back to life. Not me, I was dead. You need a rescuer. You need an outsider to come from outside and save you. Okay. Second application. Your career, your religion, or anything else, any person even, will never adequately justify your existence. There's nothing else that can do it. Only Jesus. But your reason for being here, no matter what it is, if it's less than service and love of Jesus Christ, it falls short. And you will feel that emptiness sooner or later. Third. Follow the Samaritan's example. Don't let your religious obligations, your career, your other responsibilities prevent you from loving people, uh, from doing the extra, going the extra mile, paying with your blood even if you have to, paying your money, whatever. Fourth, unless you're rescued and justified by Christ, you'll never have the power to follow the Samaritan's example. And there are people all over the world who read this story and say, that's an inspirational story. I should love that way. But you can't. Only Jesus can love that way. And if Jesus comes and grants you his power and sends the Holy Spirit to live within you, then you'll start on the road to being able to do that. I'm not there yet. Uh, I've done, at least in the last 24 hours, nine, probably nine things that 
pushed me back from that, but I'm, I'm working on it. With the Holy Spirit's help, he's pushing, us, pushing me through. He can do the same for you. Give your life to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come to live inside of you, and then you can start towards that path. Can I pray for you? Thank you, Jesus, that you are the outsider who came in and rescued us. People who are dead, basically, in our trespasses and sins. People who were helpless to help ourselves. People we can't love like you want us to love without the empowering work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We pray, God, that if there's anyone here today who this is a new message to, I pray that you will really woo them and answer their questions and love on them and help them to be able to see their need for you. Um, if there's any of us who can help, prompt us to do so, Lord, but we know you do that work. But we also pray for those of us who already know you, who are trying in our own power to love people, and are, we're failing miserably, Lord. Please, Lord Jesus, empower us through the work of your Spirit so that we can be loving and we can give you a, a great reputation even around here and that other people can see your glory and praise your name because of the things we do. You're awesome. And we praise your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.